This morning we're um, continuing in our series through the book of Acts. We're coming towards the end. Uh, Today I'll be uh, taking one more look at the missionary uh, journeys of Paul and Silas and Timothy. Uh, These last two Sundays we've been looking at the the second and third missionary journeys, and today we'll look at uh, St. Paul's message to the the folks in Athens. Not sure what happened here. Um, There we go. In Athens, uh, Paul preaches to the Greeks. It's not a sermon based on the Bible. It's a sermon to a, a secular society, a secular people. And I think it raises for us the, the interesting question, more than just interesting, the, the pressing and always urgent question of how, how do we share the gospel? How do we as God's people find a point of contact uh, in the setting where we're placed? So the, the Paul's sermon in the Areopagus is a classic uh, text in, throughout Christian history for reflecting on what counts as... Uh, the proclamation of the gospel, and how do we, uh, in our own times, seek a point of contact? I thought I would uh, start this morning with a, a quote from T.S. Eliot. Uh, T.S. Eliot, as many of you probably uh, recall from high school English or something like that, uh, was one of the great American writers, uh, intellectuals of the 20th century. Uh, uh, Harvard uh, graduate, went on to Oxford and, and really uh, adopted England as his uh, country for most of his life. But he received a Nobel Prize for contribution to the development of poetry in uh, 1948. And just as he was uh, sort of coming to prominence in his life as a, a significant cultural voice, as a significant uh, thinker, uh, someone who was affecting the the drift of Western culture, he became a Christian. Uh, Before that, he was was not a Christian. He was a a secularist, we might say, Uh, but he was converted, and his conversion began to, it it started showing up right away in in his writing and his thinking and his speaking, and it alienated his friends, people like Virginia Woolf and, and other other folks who were sort of on the, the cutting edge of uh, Western culture in that time. And they just, they, they were uh, angered by it. And they accused him of being intellectually dishonest. You know, how could such a brilliant man uh, embrace this silliness, this, uh, these fairy tales of Christianity? But uh, T.S. Eliot wrote, so he, uh, he had a lot to say. Uh, much more than than this little quote. But I I wanted to use this as a starting point for thinking about uh, our text and this whole question of how it is that we can uh, have a starting point for engaging others with the gospel or how we even understand the possibilities there. So T.S. Eliot wrote that the greatest proof of Christianity for others is not how far a man can logically analyze his reasons for believing, but how far in practice he will stake his life on his belief. There's, there's something there that's pretty compelling. And remember, he's, uh, he's writing in, in, uh, in our time, more or less. A lot, has, a lot has happened in Western culture since T.S. Eliot uh, wrote in the 
you know, the 1920s to the 1950s, but still there's something uh, that seems compelling about this, that uh, it's important uh, for the gospel to be credible that the people who bring it are credible. It's important for people in our time, uh, if, if for them to consider something and, and to give it uh, weight, that, there's, that there is some sort of, uh, of manifestation of persuasion, deep persuasion, in the life of those who communicate the message to the point that they are willing to stake their life on it, to the point that they are willing to, to make this the starting point of how they order their lives. Now, this is, uh, this is not a, a position that's free from criticism. We might say that, yes, oh yeah, that's, right, that's exactly how it is. There is. What I'm saying is there is something in that, that uh, that's pretty compelling and that we need to embrace, but I'm not putting it up here for you to write down in your Bibles and put on your refrigerators and say, this is, this is the, the last word. Uh, a contemporary of T.S. Eliot was uh, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis had, uh, he had some pretty compelling intellectual reasons for believing. C.S. Lewis is, uh, uh, an, uh, he was an ap apology for the Christian faith most famous for his uh, argument that, uh, that Jesus, Jesus uh, was either a madman or a liar. And he, he has this famous analogy that if, if someone came up to you and said that he was a poached egg, that you would assume that he was nuts, that uh, he, that, that person just you know, wasn't all there. And he moves from that, uh, that illustration to say, you know, Jesus, Jesus said he was the son of God. So he was, which is probably, you know, from a secular standpoint, could be viewed as on the level of claiming to be a poached egg. Here's a man who says he's the son of God. He's either a madman or he's telling the truth. So C.S. Lewis, and that's, that's not his only argument, but he's, he's one who's, who says, uh, I, can, I can bring some reasons from all sorts of uh, aspects of human life for believing the gospel or for at least uh, giving it a serious hearing as a, something that needs to be taken seriously. Uh, some of you may be familiar with a, a person named R.C. Sproul, uh, founded uh, a Presbyterian minister, founded Ligonier Ministries, uh, very, much, uh, very much in the camp of uh, giving reasons for, for faith. Uh, R.C. Sproul was a his mentor was a, a man named uh, Dr. G uh, John Gerstner, and if, if some of you are, are into the Ligonier materials, you, you can probably get recordings of Dr. Gerstner's talks on all sorts of things. Uh, I had the privilege of, of studying under Dr. Gerstner at, at uh, Pittsburgh Seminary, and I remember one class where he just, he flat out said, he said, I, he said, I see no reason why you can't argue someone into the kingdom of God. And of course, we're sitting there and, and saying, well, yeah, for you, Dr. Gerstner, we can imagine that that's possible. Uh, be, his, uh, his way of teaching uh, in, in Reformation dogmatics was that uh, every, every class period, he would, he would be the spokesman for some heresy. And these people who, you know, we who were aspiring to be Presbyterian ministers, it was our job to explain and defend orthodoxy to him. <laughs> And it was, you know, it was a, always a sad day for orthodoxy because 
Uh, Dr. Dr. Gerstner, being the heretic, always won the argument. Always. Because he was a brilliant man and just he had tremendous gifts for arguing. So when he said, I see no, no reason why you can't argue people into the kingdom of God, we were all thinking, yeah, and we can easily imagine that that, <laughs> that happens. But probably not all that often, probably not uh, with everyone. Yet, yet there is a, a point to be made there. So starting place, how is it that, uh, that we establish a point of contact? What gives weight to Christian witness? Probably this needs to be, be viewed from many different, uh, to realize that there, there are many things to take into consideration and there may not be just one thing that works uh, for all people at the same time. As we've gone through the book of Acts, we've seen tremendous diversity in the way that people come to faith. Uh, just, just to give one very brief example before we go to the scripture text, think of the missionaries when they landed, the first time they landed in Europe. They crossed over from Asia Minor, they get to Philippi, and they, they start out with their strategic practice. They, they go down to the riverside where they think we, they might find a prayer meeting. Where would, where would you go to find someone to share the message with? Well, let's, let's start with people who have a with people who have a sense of needing to be in fellowship with God. Let's go down and see if we can find a prayer group. So they start there, and the Lord opens the heart of a woman named Lydia. The Lord opens her heart to believe the message, and she invites the missionaries to come into her home and says, you can make my home the base of your mission here in Philippi. Who's the other really famous converted family in Philippi, the, the family of the Philippian jailer, who's not, his, his name is not mentioned, but he and his household, they come believers, they, they become believers because Paul and Silas are in prison, and there's an earthquake, and the, Paul and Silas prevent a jailbreak, and out of that, the Philippian jailer says, what do I have to do to be saved? Now that wasn't that uh, you know that probably wasn't on the strategic list of how to reach people in Philippi. That's how God worked it out. People come to faith all sorts of ways, and not just in individual encounters with evangelists, but a lot of people come to faith through uh, through the proclamation of the message in settings where there are lots of people gathered. Uh, some of the sermons, uh, like the Pentecost sermon. Peter's message in the household of Cornelius, they're just home runs. <laughs> 3,000 people believe on the day of Pentecost. At the household of Cornelius, everybody believes. And even before he gets to the altar call, everybody's converted and speaking in tongues. Uh, it doesn't always work that way. And in the missionary journeys of Paul, uh, the, the response when he preaches in larger settings is, is more mixed. And typically there's a lot of opposition and there are some folks who believe. So uh, let's, let's move to the text. And we'll be reading from Acts 17, starting at verse 22. Uh, Paul is in Athens. He's in Athens because he's been chased from Philippi to Thessaloniki, and from Thessaloniki he's been chased to Berea. And the folks in Thessaloniki who were so angry with him followed him to Berea and chased him out of there, and, peop and people took him to safety in Athens. He gets to Athens. Uh, 
He's dismayed when he sees how thoroughly idolatrous the place is. And he misses uh, Timothy and, and Silas, and he tells his, the people who escorted him as they go back, he said, send, uh, send word to Timothy and, and Silas to join me as soon as they can. And, uh, but Paul is in Athens. He's been sharing the gospel. And this is really, you know, it's just a remarkable thing. Uh, some places where he goes, people drag him out of town and they want to stone him for the message. In Athens, he presents, he's just chatting about the message in the marketplace, and people are curious, and, it's, and, and they drag him, literally, they drag him to the Areopagus, to this uh, open Mars Hill, this for, forum where they just, people can come and present views. They drag him there and say, we, we want to hear what you have to say. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by, by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Notice that Paul is able to find a, a point of contact with the Athenians in, in the limitations of their idolatry. He, he finds this altar to an unknown god, and he presents this to them as a kind of, uh, he says, you, you've more or less acknowledged yourselves. You yourselves have, have admitted that you do not know, you do not know uh, all that you need to know uh, about God or who God is. Um, and his approach, his response to this, having pointed out, I saw this altar to an unknown God, he says, uh, I will proclaim to you I will tell you uh, who this unknown God uh, really is, which seems like a, a pretty bold move, but why, why he feels uh, entitled to do that comes up in these verses. So he's continuing his uh, declaration of, of the unknown God. And he made from one man every, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul is confident that he can proclaim the unknown God and that he has a warrant to do that, He's confident he can do that because the true God has placed a knowledge of himself in the hearts of every person, every human being. Uh, God is their creator, uh, and, and God has uh, put people in the world, and God has placed within people uh, this, sense of, this sense of deity, this sense that there is a God and that they need to find this God. And of course, the response of people in, in wickedness is to suppress this. It's like whack-a-mole, you know, this feeling of, oh, there might be a God, I gotta get rid of that. 
but it keeps popping up. Uh, and he says, even, even your poets have, this, have an awareness that uh, our origins uh, are, are in, in the divine. Also, uh, before we move on from that, just note the implications of that statement for any sort of racism. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. There is only one human race. We all have the, the same uh, forefathers and, and the same you know, first uh, father and first mother. There is, there is only one human race. And biblically speaking, there is, there is no warrant for uh, one race uh, imagining itself to be better than another. Uh, and to, to look down and despise other people because they are, they are different from us. Uh, and sadly, Christianity has often uh, condoned and even uh, defended that sort of thing, even from Scripture. But there, there is no clearer text in, in, in Scripture than this, along with Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that there is one human race and that there is no place for racism uh, within the church of Jesus Christ. Notice also the last, uh, the, uh, the, the position, the, the, the insight that Paul gives about nations. There is a diversity of nations. People are different. There are different ethnicities. There are different uh, uh, locales that people identify with as home. This is God's work. This is God's design. And it is designed specifically that people might seek after God. And how, there's, there's something, of course, that Paul doesn't fill in there in, in the, the argument, but it's pretty easy to reconstruct. Namely, that nations and peoples are given their time in history, and they are given their boundary. This is your space, this is your time. And anyone who is even remotely aware of history understands that nations and peoples do not endure forever. They have, you know, the kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Countries come and countries go. Peoples live in one place and other peoples move in and, and the whole neighborhood changes. Whether it's you know, a block in your town or whether it's a whole continent. That's just how things go. So that, that what Paul is pointing to here is the temporality. The temporality of, of the existence of peoples. We're just here for, you know, we'd like to, you know, we'd like to build a name for ourselves that would last forever, but we won't. And realizing that we don't last forever, even as nations and peoples, we ask, uh, what does last forever? What would give us permanence and, and uh, duration? Well, let's, uh, let's move on here. The... This is the last part of the speech. I think he gets to, there's, if you read the text, uh, when he gets to, the, to this, uh, uh, the end of verse 31, he's cut off. It, there's, a re, there's a response of heckling, and, and, but there are also some who, uh, who want to know more. So he, he concludes the, the uh, declaration of, of God by saying, being then God's offspring, that, uh, that is us, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, 
But now he commands all peoples everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So when he mentions the resurrection, that's when most of the heckling starts. Uh, his speech is over. Uh, there are others, though, who say, we'd like to hear more about this sometime, and Paul leaves. And there are a few people who become Christians. And that's really all we know about Paul's time in Athens because he moves on from there to Corinth where he stays for uh, a year, year and a half, and has a very fruitful ministry. But the time in Athens is tremendously uh, significant. He moves, uh, he moves in his speech in Athens uh, from what we might call general revelation or natural revelation uh, to what we would call special revelation. Uh, in, in theology, uh, this is also, we might talk about the, the word of God in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. The word of God in creation is also written on our hearts. So God... Uh, God may be known as God by what he has made, uh, but that knowledge does not lead us to salvation in and of itself. The, the word of God in creation will never save your soul. It, it, will make you aware that, it can make you aware that uh, you are not right with God and that you, have, uh, that you were made for more than what you have turned out to be, but it, it will not lead you to salvation. It, it does not tell you the way of salvation. And that's where uh, the, the word of God in, in Christ, Christ as the word of God, is the saving word. So he moves in his message from general revelation, which even the pagan poets are able to understand and understand that uh, we, are, uh, we are God's offspring, to special re revelation, to things that cannot be known by looking at nature, things that can only be known if someone tells you. And as Paul tells them, what they didn't know, uh, what they were most ignorant of, and, and really it could not be otherwise, was that uh, the God who has overlooked pagan idolatry in the past is no, no longer overlooking it, but that the story of human history has taken a decisive turn because God has raised a man from the dead, and by doing that, he has made it clear that he is going to judge the world someday. He's moving towards a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, through a man, through a human being, uh, descended from the first Adam, the first man, and it is by the resurrection that God has given proof where history is going. One of, the, one of the ways that I find it helpful to, to read the Bible and to read Christian theology, to read the, uh, the journey of the church down, down through the ages, through these past two millennia, is to think of, to think of the biblical writers and to think of the, the later writers in church history as conversation partners. There are people you can... You can get into a conversation with them through what they have written. And the benefit of that, of course, is that uh, being, 
somewhat removed from our time, they, they see things a little differently. And by virtue of seeing things differently and listening to them, it opens the possibility for us to, to see ourselves in a new light. Not, and there are times when you read the, the history of the church and the fathers of the church and the leaders of the Reformation and you, you see where they're coming from and you disagree. Uh, you get back to the biblical writers and you're in a conversation with them and there are times when you want to argue with them, but they, always, they have the last word, don't they? And we, we have to let the conversation rest with them, but to have the conversation is a good thing. As we, as we look back over Acts, the ground that we've covered so far, we, have, we haven't gone into great detail about all the sermons, but there are uh, multiple sermons from Pentecost up to Acts chapter 17. And when we read these sermons, whether it's Pentecost, whether it's uh, the temple gate, whether it's Peter with Cornelius, whether it's Paul in the, in the synagogue in Antioch in Pisidia, or whether it's Paul preaching to the pagans in Athens, there is a commonality. There's a commonality in all of these messages, in all of, the, in all of these presentations of the gospel. There is one, well, there are two commonalities. The first of all is that uh, they, are, uh, they, are, uh, they come as the testimony of witnesses. It's a message conveyed by human witnesses. And as, uh, as T.S. Eliot points out, it appears that the credibility of the witnesses was really important. It, it's, not, it's not incidental that the, uh, the apostles uh, and the evangelists who go out with the gospel in the book of Acts generally experience a very hard life, that they are, co they are continually being thrown into prison. They are continually being beaten and hounded from town to town. If nothing else, it shows, shows what? They were willing to stake their life on the message. There's a great deal of credibility. There's a great deal of weight that comes. Now, there are, there are people who are willing to stake their lives on all sorts of nonsense. We acknowledge that. So it's not a decide, you know, it's not, well, this settles it. People died for it, so it must be true. But when people are willing to put their lives on the line for a, a message that, that apparently brings them no temporal reward and, and, and in many cases uh, only abuse, you have to ask, well, there, there might be something there worth investigating. What I, find, what I find fascinating, if you step back and you look at all of, all of the, the sermons in the book of Acts, you see, well, they're all spoken by messengers who, have, who are willing to pay a high price for the message. But they all have the same outline. They all have exactly the same content. God has raised a man from the dead. And this man who has been raised from the dead is now the Lord of all. He is the Lord of history. History is moving in his direction. And at the end of history, he will be manifest as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will, he will introduce a new order of things where the world operates in righteousness. And in all of these messages, there is a call to repent and get in line with where God is taking things in Christ. So that repenting doesn't just mean to feel, oh, I'm sorry, I've been such a wretched person. There, there is that. But repent in the proclamation of the apostles is, here is where history is going. Here's where God's story is going. 
Here's where the true story of the world is going. You don't seem to be on the same page. Repentance is recognize that, uh, recognize that the world is heading in the direction of righteousness and align yourself with that. Turn and, and uh, embrace Christ as Lord. Now, when we, look at, uh, when we look at the book of Acts and the sermons in the book of Acts, I'm, uh, I tend, sometimes I tend to tune in to, to what isn't there that we would expect to be there. What's one thing that you don't find in any of the sermons in which the gospel is declared by the apostles in the book of Acts? What's one thing that they never say that we think, you know, why didn't they say that? How could they leave that out? At least one thing that they never say in any of their sermons to any of the people that they preach to is, God loves you. And they're not denying that. But it, it's not something that they express. They don't say, I have good news for you. God loves you. So there are places where they say, you know, God, God forgives sins. Now, that's to Cornelius and to the folks at the, at the temple gate. But um, we would think, you know, if, if you're going to tell people the gospel, surely you would start with, God loves you. But they start with, here is, here is God's story. Here is where things are going. Uh, you really ought to get on board with this because God, God's story will impact your life in this way. Can you, can, can you imagine, I mean, I mean, I could imagine this in church, but, but imagine this in that you were to take Paul and Peter's approach to a, a, a secular campus in our country today and just tell this story that... Uh, that uh, God, God is going to judge the world through a man that he's appointed, and he's given proof of this by raising him from the dead. I think one of the first reactions that you would get if you went to a college campus in our country today and said this is that someone would get up immediately after the sermon or your message, whatever you want to call it, and say, that just sounds very judgmental to me. That offended me deeply. Uh, it upsets me that I should have to come into a, a setting where I would hear something uh, so judgmental and, and, and where people would have no respect for how that would make me feel. That's a reality. That is a reality. And as I said, you know, it's something that you wouldn't just... You, you could get that in, in many churches. And I said, you know... I, 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 Two-thirds of those who profess to be evangelicals in North America believe that there are other ways of salvation than by Jesus Christ. So uh, to say that in, in any congregation, no matter what they profess, uh, I suspect that there are some who immediately push back to this idea that God is going to judge the world. What a judgmental message. And that's why, that's why the Bible can be a great conversation partner, because it, it brings you into conversations that are kind of unsettling, and it requires you to, to think again, to wrestle with this, and, and the result may not be that, oh, from now on, I'll not share the God. When I share the gospel, I won't tell people that God loves them. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, I'm just saying that there is something about the presentation of the gospel in the, 
in the book of Acts when it's first proclaimed for the salvation of the world, where the starting point is not, how do you feel? <laughs> where the start, but the starting point is, here's what God is doing. Don't you think that's important information? Don't you think it would be important to, uh, to know where history is going and what that might portend for you at the end of history? And wouldn't you think it wise to get in line with that? One of the things I love about St. Paul's message in Athens is that it's really pretty polite. Paul is incensed by idolatry, but when he's invited to speak, he doesn't say, you know, you're a bunch of idiot idolaters. He just says... Uh, since we, are, since we are all descendants, since we are all God's offspring, we really shouldn't think that God is like, you know, wood or stone or some human invention, which is, I think, a pretty polite way of expressing oneself. So there, we, we can see respect, we can see seeking a point of content, context, but there is this determination to share God's big story. And I think that can be helpful to us all. If you ask, where in the life of the church, where in the life of the church do we run into this sort of approach where you just start with God the creator and here's what God has done and where, where are things going? Where do you find that? How about the creeds? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Where does it end up? Life everlasting. And who's in the middle? Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. A lot of people, especially baby boomers, I'm a baby boomer so I can say this, but uh, one of the things about baby boomers that we hate to admit, well, first is that we'll never grow old. <laughs> we, were, we were the first part of society to have a, to, where there was such a thing as youth culture and it never went away. So that we even, you know, when we check into assisted living, we'll, 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 we'll still be young. Um, the other thing about, one other thing about baby boomers is that if, if we didn't think of it, it didn't count. If it wasn't our idea, it really wasn't worth pursuing. So among baby boomers, there was this tremendous kind of pushback against uh, things like saying the creed and the Lord's Prayer. You know, we didn't think of those, and it's the same thing every Sunday, in and out, you know, week in and week out. Curiously, Baby boomers still hop to it when the Star Spangled Banner is played, doffed for caps. Uh, when the Pledge of Allegiance is said, most of us instinctively, our hands go to our hearts, and we don't say, oh, not that old thing again. My, my theory is that uh, these, these rituals of, of the, the National Anthem, the Pledge, all of these things were instilled in us ritually to shape our love so that we deeply love our country. And the people who instilled these things in us, we had this sense that folks were willing to put their lives on the line for it, so it must really be important. And I think uh, you can draw your own conclusions about uh, why the, the Lord's Prayer or the Creed might seem tedious. Maybe there were a lot of folks around us who just saw it as empty ritual, not something to put your life on the line for. Well, having good conversation partners, wrestling with these things, challenges to think about where would we find a good point of contact? And there are all sorts of places. The one place where we will probably not have a good point of contact to engage non-Christians is here. 
They're not going to show up here to have a conversation with us. We have to find places to engage them in these conversations about God's story. And there's, no, there's really no limit to the creativity that can be employed in that once we get past the idea that this is the place where we will bear witness. If people need to hear the word, we're here, we're open, you know, one hour a week, we can give you the... <laughs> if you really need a message that will save you, you can come here and get it, but between 10 and 11, <laughs> my goodness. I'll close with, the, I'll close with another quote. I kind of got into remembering T.S. Eliot this week. T.S. Eliot wrote this in 1931. He's kind of ethnocentric here. But he says, the world is trying the experiment. This is 1931, you know, 90 years ago, of attempting to form a civilized but non-Christian mentality. The experiment will fail, but we must be very patient in awaiting its collapse, meanwhile redeeming the time, so that the faith may be preserved alive through the dark ages before us. I'm not quite as pessimistic, but I, I do think he, is, he makes a point that apart from, apart from the grace of God, apart from the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, this is where we're headed, and it will not be, um, it will not be our arguments alone, and it will not just be uh, being really passionate about things. But there are all sorts of things that we have to come together around. We'll have to have hard conversations among ourselves to get to the place uh, where we can bear witness faithfully, no matter how dark it may seem to be on the immediate horizon. Lord, we are thankful for the gift of the scriptures. We th we're thankful that Luke wrote down the travels of the apostles, that he gave us uh, these accounts of what happened, and that he let us know what the apostles said. Help us to embrace these things and in wisdom to wrestle with them and understand how 2,000 years later they can still shape our ministries. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.